a show about the massive changes happening to how we do Chinuch, some of which may never be the same again. going to be a little different than the typical show that we do, which is usually an interview with someone in Chinuch. Today I'm going to do a solo show, and I'm going to try to explain what my goal is with Chinuch 2.0, what's the purpose of the show, and what I'm trying to accomplish, and the reasons why we have this show going for over a year now. It's a little bit out of my comfort zone to be so open. I'm usually pretty reserved. And I just feel it's important that people understand why I do the show and the goals that we're trying to accomplish. And hopefully other people can join in and help out. It's actually kind of funny that a lot of times people ask me if I do this Chinuch 2.0 show for a living, which is hilarious because anyone who knows anything about podcasts know that there's literally hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there and there's maybe only a few hundred of them that actually make any money. And those are usually run by the big media companies like the New York Times and Bloomberg. Other people do podcasts to grow their business. So let's say a social worker or a business coach might run a podcast as a way of getting attention. A historian might run his show in order to attract people to go on his tours. Rabbanim put their shiurim on podcasts so that they could spread their Torah. But none of these reasons apply here. So actually, I started this show during Corona as a way of hearing from Mechanchem, that the Mechanchem should be able to communicate to parents on how they're adapting to the realities of schools being closed. How are they able to continue their mission of educating their children while schools were closed? And uh, we, we heard from a variety of different people, some who use Zoom, some who use the phone, the ones who started school earlier than others, and that was a lot of fun. But the truth is, I really wanted to start this show well before Corona started. But I only had the time to do so when Corona shut down the world, and I found myself, like everyone, with a lot of free time. So I took the opportunity to put in the time and the effort and get the show off the ground. So let's get into the reason. Why did I start Chinuch 2.0? Until I became a tuition-paying parent, I sort of took for granted the existence of our Moistus HaChinuch. You know, it's very easy to say, to be a little cynical, and say that people who run the Moistus, run the schools, are doing it for their own credit. They have ulterior motives, they're getting rich, they have power, etc., But of course, the truth is far from that. I also sense that many parents have the wrong attitude towards chinuch. People feel like, oh, school is like a babysitter. It's there to relieve them of the burden of having to be mechanach their children. You ever go to a PTA uh, when parents are waiting to speak to the teachers, and you see parents who literally haven't spoken to their children's teachers the whole year. It's already October, November, 
December even, and they wait in line, they run in for five minutes, Yitzhazayin, and then they move on. It's no wonder why people have so many complaints about their children's school and how they, how they run. It's because the parents literally don't care. The school hardly ever hears any, any feedback from the parents, both positive or negative. Why should the school care if the parents' attitude is, here, just take my kids for the day, take care of them, I don't want to hear from you, I don't want to know from you. So I wanted to do a show that would give people the opportunity to hear directly from the people who are responsible of being mechanach our children, to hear their perspective, to get their opinions, and get people involved. And the hope is that people will hear the other side of the story and start a conversation with them, whether you agree with them or you disagree with them, but actually care. These are your children, and it's your job to do chinuch. And by hearing what's going on behind the scenes in a school, not from your child, but from the mechanchim themselves, you'll start to care more, and you'll start to, t- to get involved. But there's also a much bigger issue with regards to chinuch, which is something that motivates me to do this show. And that's basically what I'm going to spend the rest of the show talking about. When I started paying tuition in the beginning years, and I, we were a young family with very little income, and we struggled to pay even the reduced rate tuition that a Kyle family had to pay. And we realized that the tuition that we actually pay is just a small fraction of what it really costs. I mean, you can do the math. If there's 25 kids in the class and you add up the amount that I was paying, times it by the few teachers, it doesn't even cover the salaries, let alone the rest of the cost of running a school. Schools are not a money-making enterprise. It doesn't matter if it's a boys' school, a girls' school, a high school. The rising cost of tuition for hardworking families are never, ever going to keep pace of what it really costs to educate your children. How do we cover the shortfall? Do the math, see how much you're paying, try to estimate what everyone else in the class is paying, and you'll see it really doesn't even cover the salaries of the teachers or the rebate. So who covers the shortfall? So until now, it's been up to the generous Balitztaka in our community who donate hundreds of millions a year collectively to keep the system going. You open up WhatsApp, you'll get texts, you'll get emails, you'll get robocalls, you'll get regular calls. And the gap is just getting bigger and bigger. According to most stats, the cost of education rises at double the rate of inflation. So if inflation is about 3%, that means the cost of education goes up by 6%. That means that the raise that you get at work, which usually, not, not, not always, matches the, the rising cost of living, which is inflation, which means that if you get a raise at work, which barely matches the in cost of living increase, it will not cover what the, cost, the additional cost of education has gone up. According to public records, New York State, it costs $24,000 a year to educate a child. That's New York State. Now, New York State happens to be the highest in the nation from all 50 states. But if you look around, you'll see that other states are not far behind. New Jersey is about 20000 And this is kindergarten through 12th grade. 
So this is all grades and averaged out by student. It's about 16 to 20,000 on average in all 50 states. I'm sure you realize that most parents can't afford paying $20,000 a year to cover their co- their, the cost of their child's education. So as we heard in the very, very interesting and informative episode with Gershon Distenfeld, this is creating a huge bubble. Listen to what he has to say. Well, I could probably talk for a couple hours straight on all those things, but we'll try and yeah. give a high-level overview of my views and, and see. Look, I, I firmly believe this is the largest issue facing the Orthodox community. It's different in the modern Orthodox community than it is in the more yeshivish community, but it's it, it's the the difference is pale in comparison to the common theme. And that is that we cannot have a system going forward where one has to be in the top couple percent of income earners in the United States as a family to be able to meet basic tuition obligations. That is just an unsustainable system. Um, You know, I used to argue that it's only a matter of time till it crashes, whether it's five years from now, 20 years from now. But I've, I've revised my thinking over the past couple of years because the, the, it's already causing so much harm and damage to so many families in our communities that it's already blown up. So basically, young families are not able to afford to have children. Let me say that again. A young family starting out will not be able to afford to have children. Parents are working harder than ever. I think today it's almost, there's almost no such thing as a stay-at-home mom. That concept has become unthinkable. Now, you might say, okay, so the parents have to work. What's the big deal? So someone once told me a, a very interesting story with Rav Shmuel Birnbaum, who's the Rosh of the Mir. He was telling Rav Shmuel that his daughter is engaged, Baruch Hashem, to someone who's learning, a Tom Chacham, and he's going to learn in Kailo, and my daughter will go to work and help support the family. Sir Shmuel said, ah, beautiful, such mysterious nefesh that the women are willing to go work so that their husbands could sit and learn. So the, the, the Talmud told Rav Shmuel, is it such a beautiful thing? Do they really want to do it? Sir Shmuel says, yes, yes, today's, today's girls, today's B'nai uh, Yisrael are mice nefesh, they're willing to be mice nefesh and give up the comforts of, of life in order so that their husbands can learn. So the Talmud told Shmuel, that's very good for the, for the mother. Uh, but what about the child? Is the child Michael? And Rishmuel wasn't able to answer. So lots of experts have said that many of the problems that we have today with Chinuch, many of the challenges, have to do with parents, both parents not being available for their children. They're not able to give their children time. They're busy working. They're so busy. Their life is so hectic. They can't give their children the proper attention. And if both parents have to work full-time just to make ends meet and barely, how can, we, how can they expect to do chinuch properly? How can they expect to be there for their kids? Plus, another downside of all this is that the attitude that is given over to the children is that making money is the most important aspect of a Jewish lifestyle. You have to make money. Why? Because living a Jewish lifestyle is so expensive. 
The only way to do it is by making as much money as you possibly can. From a young age, a child is taught, whatever you can do to earn money, that's what you're supposed to do. So we're trying to give over the values of living a Torah lifestyle to our children and to appreciate learning, to appreciate doing mitzvahs. We try to teach that to our sons to learn every second they could possibly learn. And that our daughters, the value of Limar HaTayra and that they, have, they should want to have a husband who sits and learns every available minute. But they're getting mixed messages. Instead, they're seeing the parents are working so hard. All they're doing is all, the, all, all they're busy all day is work, 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 make money, make money, make money so you could pay the bills. Also, as Gershon told us, people are deeply in debt. They don't have savings. There's no savings for an emergency. There's no savings for retirement. Teachers in Rabbeim are still terribly underpaid, even with this huge increase in, in the cost of tuition. They're still not able to keep up the teachers in Rabbeim salary to what it is in other places. And this is also causing a huge shortage in teachers and Rabbeim. If you look in the Help Wanted section of any Jewish publication, you'll see tons and tons of ads all competing for looking for teachers. Nobody wants to teach. It used to be that every Beis Yaakov girl, when they asked, what, what do you want to do when you're older? I want to be a teacher. Now hardly any of them say they want to be a teacher. Why should they want to be a teacher? They want to be in graphics. They want to be a therapist. They want to be a PA, a nurse. Nobody wants to be a teacher. Teachers don't make money. Everyone knows that. They're looking to get some fancy degree. It'll keep them out of the house from day to night. They'll hire a living to take care of their kids, and they'll be able to live a nice lifestyle. It's pretty clear that this system is unsustainable. It's causing tremendous stress, tremendous problems, and something has to be done soon. So that's where this show comes in. How do we pay for the cost of being mechanach our children and take away this terrible burden from the parents and make it a sustainable system that could keep on going for the long term? Now, I, of course, we speak about other topics relating to chinuch, and we try to hear people who have good ideas about how to improve the chinuch system. But this is the big issue that we're trying to solve. How can we make educating our children affordable again? So let's talk about the most commonly suggested ideas that are out there to try to make chinuch affordable. And the first one that everyone likes to say is government funding. With all due respect to Rabbi A.D. Motzin and the rest of the Haskanim, and Rabbi Motzin was a guest on this show, it's not likely to happen in the near future. While this has had some limited success in Ohio with vouchers, and Rabbi Motzin told us how he lives in Cincinnati and has to pay very little, if anything, for his children's tuition, and even that's not a complete solution. It's not likely to happen in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, or any other state with a sizable from community. I think you can all see the political winds, how the political winds are blowing, and this is not going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. Rabbi Motzen actually addressed this very issue. So, Rabbi Motzen, as, as the National Director of State Relations at Agudas Yisrael, are we wasting our time trying to get vouchers in New York? Is it, is it even, do we think that, is it reasonable to say that in our lifetimes we're going to see where New York and, and New Jersey are going to 
actually come to a point where there's private school, where, where the state will actually fund parents to pay for their private school education? Um, so so there's a lot to unpack there in a short amount of time, so I'll, I'll try. First of all, um, just recall, it, wasn't, it was only a few years ago where you had a Senate and the governor, same Governor Cuomo, uh, who's currently your governor, uh, propose a scholarship tax credit, a major scholarship tax credit. And, um, and not only supported or agreed to sign it, it was his, he made it his bill. So the idea that it can't happen is, is simply, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Um, there, it is difficult. It is a challenge. Um, a waste of time. I heard the same thing in Cleveland and in Ohio years ago. And guess what? Now there are millions of, of dollars going to uh, thousands of children, including those attending or choosing to attend Jewish day schools. They're getting, in some cases, about $6,000 a child. In Illinois, you could have easily said that it's impossible. It's a liberal Democrats control the state. And, and I, along with my counterparts in Illinois, we visited the state house in Springfield every year. We talked about this issue and we came down and the Catholics talked about this issue. And a few years ago, under a Republican governor, but a democratically controlled house, they made a deal. It's politics. They made a deal. And they passed a $100 million scholarship tax credit program. And when the governor, current governor came in and said, you know, I don't like that program. I think I'm going to end it. Guess what? Not only did he end it, things are going, yeah, the, the, the legislature um, continued to press and uh, thanks to friends in the legislature and, and many advocates, parents who are sitting at home saying the same thing you were 10 years ago, who went down to the state house and called and emailed. And guess what? They have a program, $13,000 a child. Um, so the answer is, of course, it's, it is worth the effort. You have to be realistic. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to get vouchers tomorrow. Um, there's another avenue as well. There's the federal government. Right now, um, there, there ha we have been working for uh, for couple, last couple of years on a, on a federal uh, program that would still need state buy-in, but the federal government dangling could be fifty million dollars or more to the state and saying if you buy in and you have there could be a scholarship tax credit, not like Montana's one hundred fifty dollars, but same concept, but it could be five thousand dollars a child. And that's something that has been pushed by the Secretary DeVos. So we've had a long-standing relationship, and this is something she stood up uh, again and again and talked about. Um, and it's right now being discussed. Uh, the rumors from Washington, there was an article uh, last week that there's rumors that that's even being discussed in the next stimulus package as a, a possible, um, possible deal. What's going to happen? It's politics. I can't tell you what's going to happen. But I can tell you that the administration is behind this. They've talked about it many times. Secretary DeVos has been behind it. And if you have a $5 billion, which she had talked about in the past, and, and there's a House and Senate bill, Ted Cruz is the Senate sponsor, $5 billion for the country for a scholarship, for a scholarship tax credit. That can, make, that can have a meaningful uh, impact in New York, New Jersey. So we all need to get up, talk to our member of Congress, and, and, and see what we can do. And miracles uh, can happen in, in, in Illinois. They can happen in Washington as well. Proposed funding private schools, especially religious schools, in the states where there's a sizable from population, immediately there would be a huge outcry from the teachers' unions, UCLA, Bernie Sanders, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and all the other politicians that are grace our wonderful state. Plus, it would cost the government billions of dollars that they don't have. Historically, paying for tuition was never an issue for parents. Why? Because they were never responsible for paying tuition. The community funded tuition. 
the Gemara talks about a takana of Rabbi Shua ben Gamla, where he instituted that there should be schools in every city and every community that was funded by the community. Now, in Europe, there was something called a malamed that every person paid for, for their child to go learn from the malamed, and they all gathered together in the shul. But that was really young. That was only for a few years. And it was a very, it, it was a, it was a very small amount of money. As a percentage of their income, I don't know how much it was, but I don't think it was nearly a percentage of the income that it is today. And then once the child reached 10 or 12 years old and they were finished in their town, they went to a yeshiva, distant yeshiva, very often, or they went to a yeshiva in their town if they happened to have one in their town, but the parents never paid tuition. It was up to the Rosh Yeshiva to collect funds for the yeshiva or the community supported the Rosh Yeshiva or the Rav with, with his yeshiva. The Hassam Seifer had a yeshiva in his town that was funded by the community. The parents didn't have to pay tuition. I have a friend, Eli Pollack, who's a CPA in Baltimore, who has been pushing the idea that today's schools should be funded by the community instead of parents. Now, there's a huge advantage of having a school system funded by the community as opposed to being funded by parents. Currently, private school tuition is not tax deductible. It's considered a personal expense and not a donation. And the cost of tuition for most people is after tax. There are some exceptions for religious workers, but for the most part, private school tuition is not tax deductible. If, however, tuition was shifted from being a parental obligation and instead become a community obligation, the money that you would give towards the community fund to run schools would be considered a tax-deductible donation. And that's actually a very good method of having the government pay for our education. Let me explain. Right now, tuition is after tax. So if parents are paying $25,000 of tuition a year for a family of, let's say, four, and they are making $200,000 a year, taxes on that $200,000 is probably around $50,000 or so, fifty dollars to $60,000. So that means they are left with $140,000 they would have to pay $25,000 from that $140,000. That leaves them only with about $115,000 left. If, however, this would be tax deductible, the parents would be paying the $25,000 tuition on the $200,000. That means their taxable income would only be $175,000. And that means that the money that they paid towards tuition would be much less of an impact on their budget. I don't want to get into all the math now, but if you look at Ellie Pollack's essay, which is linked in the show notes, you'll be able to see how this all works out. Of course, getting the community to fund schools instead of parents is easier said than done. Think about the people who already paid tuition for their children all the years. They're going to say, I already did my years of paying tuition. Why should I want to start all over again? Of course, They still have an obligation to help out the people in their community, but that's going to be a very hard hurdle to overcome. I think that in order to even get the system to be tested, it would have to be started as a pilot program in a brand new community. Now, I'm going to go totally off the rails now and suggest a crazy idea, but hear me out. 
If you speak to any young person today, they're going to tell you that the biggest crisis that faces them is that they don't have places to live. Young families literally are priced out of the Jewish neighborhoods. In most Jewish communities in the tri-state area, you can't even look at a house for less than 750000 which is obviously out of reach for young families in their 20s and 30s. If someone of means, an Askin, wants to do good for the community, this is what they should do. You should try to start an experimental young community. I'll pick two places just for an example. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Charlotte, North Carolina. Why did I pick those two cities? These two cities are both highly ranked on the best places to live in U.S. News and World Reports. Their house prices over there in these, in these cities are probably 30 to 40 to sometimes even 50% lower than it is in the New York City metro area. So in order to become a member in this community, this would be the condition. You would have to agree to either pay 25% of your income towards the community school fund that would pay for the operating of the schools, or a pro rata share of the education budget for the entire community. So let's say the community totals 250 families, and there are 1,000 students in the whole community. And let's say, for argument's sakes, the cost of educating the children is $5 million. That means each family would be responsible to pay $20,000 towards the fund, regardless of the number of children that they have in school or if they have any children at home. Now, this $20,000 would be tax deductible. So if you have an income of $175,000, the $20,000 is probably equal to after-tax ta- dollars of about sixteen or 17000 But if you're making a lot more than that, the savings are much greater. The 20000 that you're paying towards the community fund doesn't cost you 20000 only costs you about 12000 We could get into the details later, but enforcing this shouldn't be a problem if people would be willing to pay it because they agree to the concept. The concept makes sense, and it's something that they'll agree to before moving into the community. Now, this is not going to be enough, but it's a start. On top of this, I want to suggest that the school would have to embrace very tough, cost-cutting measures. $5 million for 1,000 students, which comes out to $5,000 a student, is wishful thinking. But with good management and a bare-bones staff, the cost probably could come down into the $7,000 per student range. But this would involve radically changing the way schools are run. Here's the thing. We could cut the cost of educating children with technology. We had an episode with the old Judaist who who shared his experience teaching using existing frameworks to deliver the lessons. And he took the role of a facilitator instead of being a teacher. Instead of finding qualified teachers for every subject, there's so much material out there that can be harnessed to teach and the, children, and the teachers that are currently in the role of teachers can turn into facilitators where they just pass along the information and help the children absorb it. Rav Ronen and the team at Yeshiva Ta'atid, and with the very active involvement of Gershon Distenfeld that we had earlier, 
are doing an excellent job at keeping the costs of education down to a manageable level. We also had Rafal Alter way in the beginning of Chinuch 2.0 talk to us about his innovative program, Lomde, which helps, helps each child learn at their own level. Chomish, Mishnayis, even Gemara. Now, a lot, most of the cost of education today is in staff. Today, kids don't learn through lectures. They learn through experience. If we're going to use technology in a kosher manner and transfer much of the learning to experience instead of lectures, we'll be able to leverage the power of technology to really cut down the cost of staff. Whether it's Limude Kaidesh, which there are many source materials that can be taken, such as TorahMasaris.org. The consortium has a wonderful Lahavan Ulahaska program. We had Rabbi Glass on talking to us about it. And even secular subjects. There's so much material out there. There's Khan Academy, there's YouTube, there's Wikipedia. Of course, it has to be filtered, but we can figure out how to do it. If we could save millions and millions of dollars a year on extra teachers and extra staff and find a way to just bring the technology and harness what's out there already in a kosher manner, we really could bring about a tremendous savings for everyone. Now, parents might give some pushback initially because this is a radical idea and this is a whole new way of teaching. But in a small new community that's founded by people who are running away from the high cost of living in today's Jewish communities, they might be pretty receptive to giving this a try. Like we said, if there's no pain, there's no gain. We have to be willing to experiment. Now, I know what you're all thinking, that this is all fantasy and this is our partners' is crazy dreams. Perhaps. But if someone's listening and wants to do something about it, they would give this a try. Forget about the fact that there's money to be made on the real estate. It's a speculative play, but it could be, play out very nicely in the long run. The reason why I thought about Charlotte in particular, and also Raleigh-Durham in North Carolina, is that they're somewhat within driving distance of the New York area. They're only about nine hours or so, could be even less, depending on what time of the day. And they're also on the road to Florida, which means that all the delivery trucks bringing food from New York to Florida could easily stop by and deliver, deliver products to those communities. Another advantage of this system is that it takes away the power from the school administrators and instead gives it over to the community. Many families today, especially in Muncie and Lakewood, have a, have a problem that their children are not being accepted into schools. If the school administrator controls everything about the school, they could, they could decide which families they want in the school and which families they don't want in the school. If it's a community-funded school, there's going to be a board who decides in a somewhat objective manner which children are accepted and which children are not accepted. There'd be very clear objective standards of what the school requires, and families that meet those requirements are the ones that get accepted into the school. There would be a board who oversees the school, and administrators would have to report to them. His job would be on the line. Now, you have to be aware that principals and teachers are going to be somewhat opposed to this tremendous shift of power. The control of the school is basically being taken away from them. 
And for teachers, they're also being told to change their entire method of instruction, things that they, something that they've been used to doing differently, very differently all their years. We actually had on an earlier show when we interviewed a Rebbe and we asked him, what would your dream of, of changing chinuch look like? And he said if he had all the money in the world, he would bring class size down to 15 because a Rebbe really connects with his Talmidim when it's only 15 kids. And it sounds wonderful, but who's going to pay for it? As it is, we can't afford it. Getting it down to 15? Not going to happen. And there's also a lot, a lot of debate if having smaller class size really helps the children or not. I know people like to think that having smaller classes helps them learn better, but the actual data is not clear about that at all. I know all these ideas sound crazy, but we have to do something about this before this bubble bursts. If we try this, the market will tell us pretty quickly if this idea has a chance of succeeding. We'll be able to tell by the number of people moving into this community if it's being successful. And there's the advantage that the more people that move into a community, the lower cost it is for everyone in the community because it's getting distributed amongst even a greater amount of people. So before we close, let's summarize what we have so far. We have the problem facing us. The problem is the high cost of chinuch is affecting us in so many ways. It affects our shalom bias. It affects the family finances. It affects the number of children being born into Klai Yisrael. Parents are working long hours outside the home. They're not able to spend time with their children. And children are being raised with the attitude that glorifies making money at all costs. Number two, the current system is not sustainable. Even if things continue as is, we won't be able to afford it in a few short years. And everything will collapse, chas Number three, solutions. First part, a community-funded model which utilizes the government's tax deduction for donations as a significant portion of the funding. 30 to 40% of the cost of our education can come from existing legislation that allows tax-deductible donations to be paid with pre-tax dollars. Number two, the second part of this, is cost-cutting. Utilizing technology to successfully increase class sizes require less teacher involvement on an individual level, and reducing the cost per student to a manageable level. So now that I've covered my goals with this show, I'm going to end with a request of all of you who are listening to please share this episode and all the other episodes with others who care about Chinuch. Of course, you can rate this show on Apple, which is going to help spread this show even further. And please, 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 Send in your suggestions, your comments, your thoughts, and ideas on how to make this show even better. What kind of guests do you want to hear from? Let me know. You can reach me by sending an email to the show, which is linked in the show notes, and it's Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at chinuchshow.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you continue this journey with me. You've been listening to Chinuch 2.0, a show exploring the changes happening to how we do Chinuch. Chinuch 2.0 is hosted and produced by me, Aaron Parnas. 
You can subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts or on our website, chinuchshow.com. For suggestions, comments, or guests' ideas, please visit chinuchshow.com. Thanks for listening.